Hello, and welcome back to this episode of The Lorgoifs. I'm one of your hosts, Michelle. I'm Bob. I'm Taya. I'm Chris. And we are back to go ahead and discuss the old stories of Zendikar as we prepare for Return to Return to Zendikar, also known as Zendikar Rising. But before we head off to these wonderful um, trap-filled plains of terror and otherwise awesomeness and Baelos and good things like that, we want to go ahead and give a shout out to a couple of amazing presences in our lives. Bob, why don't you go ahead and tell us about one of them? So the first love of our life is Card Kingdom. They've been our sponsor for a long time now and easily the best place to buy your magic signals, magic sealed product, or board gaming needs, or any gaming needs on the internet. And when this episode releases, we should be right in the middle of spoiler season for Zendikar Rising, so you'll have plenty of neat new cards to pre-order from Card Kingdom. Yeah, and hopefully we can see all the Bailoffs because I'm excited about all them Bailoffs. But speaking of amazing people who also support us, Grace, why don't you tell us about our lovely patrons? Well, our patrons are fabulous, fantastic, and several other F-words, phenomenal. Several other F words. Several other F words, but only the kindest of them. Uh, no, our patrons are amazing, and uh, if you're interested in joining that group of amazing F word people, you can join us over at Patreon.com/slash/lorgoifs. <laughs> oh, Grace, you're you're so we, graceful. You're wonderful. Yeah, you're so graceful. Such such grace. Very grace. Wow. <laughs> but speaking of wonderful, graceful things, um, seems like we're back with our the second installment of the Not Really Ken Burns documentary that we currently have. Ah, um, yes. That wonderful Memories of Zendikar with our wonderful Zendikari contact, Bruce Tarl himself, yeeter of cows and excellent spinner of stories. I think this is a Burns Grace documentary is what we should call it. Uh, it's a burn's grace. <laughs> and so you're not you're not incorrect. <laughs> so with that, let's go ahead and move to the uh, second part of Bruce's amazing story. This time, talking about the great battle for Zendikar. Wow. That was a really fascinating story. Now, now you settle down there, girl. I know I'm not the best storyteller. There's no need to get all riled up like you got one of them burrs in your backside, Bessie. Oh, you're talking to the cow. Uh, you know what? I should be going. Oh. Or I'll stay. <clears throat> now, where were we? Oh, uh, that's right. Them old planeswalkers did a bunch of locking up of those Eldrazi scum, and then them new planeswalkers. Well, they let them out in the most confounding ways, much to the glowy gray Durgan's chagrin. The next few years were a hoot and a half, I gotta tell you. With Shajiri and them there vampers and the Balaged getting the worst of it, I'm not much of a fan of them there Skeeters, but no one deserves seeing their home turned in much chalk dust by some wiggly boys. Wiggly boys? And it ain't like we saw the last of them walkers. There's one big fella with these massive mutton chops. Just like old Bessie over there. 
ran all the way down the neck. And the size of his quads? Well, I ain't never seen a rump roast like that. And he was helping organize folks and get them all together at the Seagate. By Amiria's biceps, he sure was a sight to behold, flinging his ribbon sole back and forth, slicing and dicing folks while fighting himself in the front of people yelling, I got this! Gideon, I think his name was. <laughs> right, right. He was looking worse for wear when he finally brought back in some other walkers. Jace, I think that blue boy was called. He had a lot of belts. Finally came back with some sleuthing with them them hedron thingies that Nahiri made near the eye of Ugin. Or some such trying to hold back them imprisoned Eldrizi. <laughs> you know, the hedrons. The big stony diamonds. The ones that he used to scratch yourself with, old Bessie. Yep, he and, and that Jace helped set up a new encampment with the Corps, the Merfolk, and the humans, further away from Skyrock, where they met up with that delightful planeswalker elf Nisa. She's from here, you know. Her and her tree person, Ashaya. She really did love seeing that name over and over again. Ashaya this, and Ashaya that, and Ashaya, you're the heart of Zendikar, the heart of my home, and the steel of my heart. Which I thought was a little odd, but, I mean, she really loves this place, you know? Oh, Jace was involved, this is gonna end great, I'm sure. Anyway, the refugees had to fall back even further to Zulaport, and I think that's where one of my favorite stories really begins. When good old Ripley Gideon set out scouts to find the other bands of survivors when he came upon Drana and her bloodsuckers out in Goose Dress. The long train of survivors from Ghoul Draws plotted on, a motley crew of 15,000 humans, elves, merfolk, core, and vampires trudging away from the white dust of their former homes. Drana, the leader of the remaining Malakir vampires, flew up into the air and met her scouts as dead Eldrazi-touched birds simply dropped out of the sky around her. Report. Core kite sails are approaching, Drana. Should we bleed them, or should we bid them welcome? Let us welcome them. Perhaps they bring news. If not, at least they bring blood. Yummy! Drana met the core on solid ground, not quite yet tainted by the wriggling, devouring Eldrazi scions in the distance. The core scout named Enkindi told Drana about the last stand that Gideon was organizing at Seagate. We could use your help. You have strong warriors still with you. True. We do have strong warriors. Uh, wait, is that a child? Everyone must learn to fight for themselves in this, the end of the world. Arya, I mean, Melindra, come here. Hello there. Huh. I didn't even see you move. I like to stick people with the pointy end. Now, now, Melindra, don't scare our visitor. Are you sure he's not on my list? Seriously, go and practice killing people with the rest of your orphan friends. Okay. Um, well, that's messed up. Will you join us? <sighs> How about this? You help us with our Aldrazi problem first. Then we'll come and help you, assuming we all survive. We're surrounded on three sides by a huge tentacle trunker and two of its scions. They've been following us for weeks. I could rip this guy's face off and wear it. 
The Corps Scout agreed, and the rest of the flyers joined the survivors of Malakir and Balaged in what could be the last battle of their lives. Drana smoothed her hands over her iridescent armor and planned her strategy with the rest of her war council. The next day, they began their attack. The weaker humans, elves, and merfolk stayed behind with the wounded, while the vampires and Enkidi's forces took to the air and met the Eldrazi. The battle was bloody and relentless. No matter how many tentacled monsters fell, there were more and more of them, draining land and foe alike with a single touch, reducing fury and anger to bone and dust. Drana, ever pragmatic and thoughtful, knew she had to put her secondary plan into motion. From the air, she motioned the small squadron of the Orphan's Brigade towards a clifftop to lure the huge Eldrazi sire. Then she clasped her hands to her face to her best damsel in distress impression and cried out, Oh no, and Kindy, the children are in trouble. She pointed at the children, bristling with knives, spears, and other weapons of individual destruction. Yay, stabbing! Don't worry, Drana, we'll save the kids. Drana watched with utter satisfaction as the core kite sails led by Inkindi distracted the head and limbs of the enormous Eldrazi sire. As they were picked off one by one, Drana caught a falling core in midair, drained him dry, and cast her spell just as she plunged straight into the heart of the Eldrazi sire with one enormous splat, her determination crushing bone and viscera in one swift move. Oh yeah! <laughs> Once inside the Eldrazi sire, she plunged her fangs into its heart. Drana could feel her spell working, unraveling the patterns and unseen mysteries of this strange creature. Suddenly, she could hear the thoughts of this being. Feed me. Does it have to be Zendikar? Feed me. Does it have to be those that are mine? Feed me, Mana. Feed me all night long. I can relate to this endless hunger. That's right, Drana. I'll get you everything you ever wanted. Power? A car? A date with Gideon? I don't know. I have so many strong reservations. Come on, sugar. A lot of folks deserve to die. And you're just like me. You are me. Now serve me. Drana felt her sense of self dwindle as the hunger of this beast ate away at her identity, exposing her core. A stubborn, dark part of herself remained, impermeable and indigestible. I serve no one. She drank even more deeply of the Eldrazi, dark black and purple energies shimmering around her as her proclamation caused a sire to explode into small fragments. Drana hovered in the sky, drunk on power and exultant with self-importance. Below, she saw her people fighting the remaining Eldrazi, and Melindra rushing forward with a pike. Behind the small girl, a tentacle reached out to strangle the child. No, she is mine! A bolt of purple energy sped out of Drana and infused Melindra with more power, more speed. The tentacle touched the girl and shattered, while more rays of Drana's power gave her army the second wind it needed. Below her, around her, Drana's vampires and ragtag army became stronger and invulnerable. The Eldrazi were completely slaughtered. Seeing the tide of battle turn, Drana expended the rest of her power and fell, unconscious. Upon waking, she saw one of her lieutenants say excitedly, You were magnificent! With this power, we could retake Gul'draz! Drana interrupted him. We're going to Seagate. The vampire lieutenant frowned. You can't possibly think we should honor the sacrifice that those stupid core guys made. Don't question me, we're going to Seagate! 
And thus, the vampires and the rest of their army went to Seagate. I'm not dead yet! Wow, what an engaging and amazing second installment of Memories of Zendikar. Huh? What? Sorry, I fell asleep. What? <laughs> oh, yeah. Sorry, Grace. Uh, we saw you planes walked away and then we just decided to keep doing the podcast without you. You keep doing this, Grace. I don't know what to tell you. Like, we love you. We want you part of this podcast, but you gotta stay in one temporal plane, you know, at least for more than 10 minutes. I mean, there's no evidence that says I'm not the Wanderer, so maybe that's my problem. Uh, that explains why you keep punching yourself. Um, I'm so either the Wanderer I... or Cruel. Jury's still out. <laughs> with that, let's go ahead and move to our, our new sponsor. This is a really cool new show. I mean, I... I really gotta say, I never really took Ashiok for the kind of planeswalker that would go around yelling at stupid people, but Ashiok's doing a fantastic job. On today's episode of Kitchen Nightmares, Ashiok faces the challenge of Ashiok's life on life when the owner of the Zulaport Bar and Grill doesn't want to see reason. Oi, see here, you smoky face snob. This is my restaurant, my property, my menu. If I want to charge people one life point for every Cliff Chicken barbecue platter, that is my prerogative. That's completely unreasonable, Declan. Not even my worst, most beautiful mental horrors could justify anyone paying anything for a plate of half-cooked chicken on a moldy bun. The feathers are still attached, and it's squawking. That shows it's fresh! Oh, no. Even the kitchen staff are left completely without allies in this rowdy restaurant. Declan, you can't just take from the tip jar every time you happen to serve some water. I'm doing the work, same as you. Why should I not get my fair share? Oh, yes. Continue this ridiculous argument. It will make fine fodder for the dreams of the waiters at Sapphire Sundays. But she has a point. What kind of owner takes tips from their serving staff? Well, this greedy cutthroat. Hey now! Then finally, Ashiok has to take matters into Ashiok's own hands. Oh, now that I have your brainless head in my grasp, I can see you for what you are now. What are you? I'm a nightmare sandwich. Precisely. Now, return to the void from whence you came, you gormless creature of fear and incompetence. <laughs> Find out what happens next episode of Kitchen Nightmares, now playing at 7 p.m. on Wednesdays on the CW Seagate channel. Ashiak does a really good job cleaning up these disgusting restaurants, doesn't Ashiak? Ashiak, I know, has been reviled by many people for milling their entire deck, especially during limited War of the Spark situations and also Theros. Ashiak! But Ashiak also seems to do a really great job of, yeah, just helping these restaurant owners really understand what a nightmare their business has become. Yeah, I do want to wait to see what happens when Gordon Ramsay tries to, you know, pull copyright on Ashiok. Oh, I my money is on Ashiok. <laughs> my yeah. money is on Ashiok. Your I know Gordon Ramsay so works dry. out, but... Is it that dry? <laughs> Gordon again. Ramsay's nightmares are just nothing but perfectly prepared food that he can't criticize about anything? Yes. <laughs> Oh, man. Uh, well, 
On that note, uh, one, I, I love this story. I'm so glad that Bruce really got into it. I think this is one of the first really wonderful representations of Black-aligned allies. Like, and, and we see this expanded further with Liliana Vess and her her attitude towards, you know, saving Innistrad. And I think we have kind of a similar idea to with Soren. But this is the first story, and I think John is the first character to really show Black in, like, a non-evil way, in a way that makes sense for this world that is coming to an end, and the way this color would try to save it. She's kind of like that friend that you need, but you don't really want. <laughs> She's the friend who constantly yells at you to break up with that one partner who's really, really bad, and is also like super into self-care. No, she's the one that gets you to break up with that partner because she wants that partner. For lunch. Well, that's for lunch, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to torture for her own needs. It's like, you're not extorting enough out of this person. Let me go ahead and take care of that for you. <laughs> like, she understands the key point of extortion is that you have to follow up. You have to be a person of honor and follow up on what you're going to do, or else nobody's going to trust that you're not going to extort them in the future. But I also just love this, I guess, benevolent selfishness. I guess that's how I would describe Drana's attitude here. Like, she's pragmatic. I love how flavorful she is like black is not above manipulating others to get what they need to get done mm -hmm. and i think that's what happened here when she manipulates the core with enkidi and his scouts to like just suicide themselves essentially so she can really do like the ultimate plan which is essentially just like absorb all the power out of this eldrazi scion and just sort of you know explode and enhance her allies which is so cool I, and i really do like you know how well that story ties into her mechanics on the card you know in like the history of limited bombs she's definitely up there in the like i want to open her and i am going to win absolutely i mean any time, uh, let's see, her, her card is so great. She has flying first strike. She's, of course, a beautiful um, mythic rare. And whenever she does combat damage to a player, so in this case, she did combat damage to this Eldrazi, put a plus one, plus one counter on each attacking creature you control. It's just, it's just so good. It's just such a good card. And it's so beautifully rendered in the story in a way that I don't think we get to see very often. Yeah, she's also in Mystery Boosties, which is really fun. Yes. And she was in uh, Jumpstart as well. I definitely loved opening her in that. I really like Drana a lot, especially because I feel like she represents sort of the pivoting point in this particular set of stories in, in the new Zendikar story. Because up until this point, we've seen a lot of defeat, despite people's best efforts. I mean, we have... Gideon going to get Jace, but even when Jace shows up, like, his help is sort of limited, and he's kind of grasping at straws, and uh, Kiora is having a hard time getting her whole shtick off the ground, and so it's sort of a lot of, like, defeat after defeat after defeat, and what I really like thematically with Drana being sort of this pivoting point in that story is that it's it, in a sense it's Drana doing what Nahiri couldn't and saying no this is mine fuck what you need yeah no this um, is mine <laughs> yeah uh this is mine and I'm going to protect it with literally everything I have and you can die mad about it kind of talking about how we even get to this point you know at the beginning of the battle for Zendikar story is like you know, Jay shows up from Gideon's invite, sees, like, everything's hopeless, and he's like, yeah, maybe I should go get Chandra to help because she's good at burning things, and she's chilling <laughs> at the monastery at this point, point. she's just like, yeah, 
she's playing, you know, the mother superior role in trying to change train the initiates, and she's like, I don't really want to go anywhere right now, even though she did. <laughs> and so Jace goes back empty-handed, and Nyssa shows up somewhere along the lines because Nyssa... And they kind of, like, put together this plan, but they are just continually getting their butts handed to them by the Eldraz. And I think it's because none of them have the ruthlessness that they need. And and what and the other thing, too, is that the previous stories before this focused so much on the Planeswalkers, whereas this is the first time we see a native Zendikari army take down, like, a, a, a huge Eldrazi foe, like a yeah. huge, like one of Ulamog's um, scions. And it's, it's enormous. And I think that's what, like, going back to Grace's point about things, this being so pivotal, I think the story is important within the context of um, Battle for Zendikar arc because it focuses so much more on the inhabitants of Zendikar and the price that they are paying for their freedom and their right to exist. I think it grounds the, the whole arc in a very wonderful way. Whereas we've got, you know, Gideon is, of course, you know, fighting and doing not to discount like the the efforts that these i guess visitors from other worlds are are making on behalf of this plane but it's so nice to see homegrown heroes right yeah when tazri confronts gideon about it she's like if things really go wrong you get to leave we don't yeah yeah and and she calls him out Absolutely for it. And of course, he says like, well, no, I'm going to stay because I'm Gideon and I have a terrible survivor's guilt complex. But um, that's beside the point. Tell that to Amon Kit. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> slam. Oh, oh. But getting back to Grace's point, I really like this contrast that you made between uh, Nahiri and Drana, right? Because Nahiri is, at the end of the day, white aligned. And it's interesting to see how she enacts her vengeance in, in like this very orchestrated way on Innistrad. But Drana is just so, she is willing to play dirty because that's what happens. Like when you're trying to reason with the unreasonable, like there's only one way to fight against Eldrazi. I've played Arkham Horror enough times to understand that there is no way of reasoning with Lovecraftian monsters. You just have yeah. to blast them with dynamite and Tommy guns. Well, it's, it's interesting because part of that contrast is Nahiri shows up, sees the destruction, and instead of seeking out if there is any seed of hope left she just decides that yeah it's it's all gone it's all done whereas drana you know she has this connection to zendikar one obviously she doesn't have the option to leave like nahiri does full stop but also you know she was at the destruction at the epicenter of the destruction of balgad and so or not i'm sorry not balgad um uh Girls, yeah so, draws draws cool. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, that place name. She, the point is, she was at an epicenter of destruction. She was witnessing this all firsthand and witnessing just how hopeless turning that tide was. And she went, okay, but no more. Okay, but you've had enough of my people. Now it's my turn to take some of your things. And at the end of the story, she does decide to go join the Alliance at Seagate because it is optimal. Obviously there's the, the black end of like, this is optimal. I will gain more power from this, but also because no, this is really it. Like 
this is the do or die moment. And Nahiri, Nahiri missed out on that do or die mo moment, you know, and you can debate on whether that is because she didn't bother to look or because she's already been so hopeless because of being locked in the hell vault for so long. Like, there's a lot of, like, debate you can have around that particular instance, but I think it's really interesting to see the black-aligned character buy into hope and the white-aligned character buy into despair, because that's what Nahiri has done. Nahiri has gone full scorched earth. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Nahiri's gone, you've, you've taken this from me, so I'm going to take back equal from you. Whereas Drana goes, you've taken from me, and I'm going to reclaim what's mine. I think the difference here, too, between Nahiri and Drana is that Drana is a leader. She is a ruler. And I don't think Nahiri ever wanted that. There is a big picture aspect to the way Drana looks at the world. She's very pragmatic about the fact, like, yeah, I have a bunch of vampires and I know they need blood, but we're only going to have them feed on, like, the dying. She's got the mind of a quartermaster in these yeah. situations in the sense that she's, like, figuring out what we've got vis-a-vis -vis ammunition, what we've got vis-a-vis -vis rations and whatnot. Whereas Nahiri, on the other hand, and I don't really think that this is, has to do with an old walker because we have a lot of old walkers who do think along those lines. But Nahiri, I think, actively didn't want to become that kind of leader, that kind of, she didn't really want that kind of necessary responsibility. Not that she didn't want responsibility, but that particular kind of responsibility where you're basically, you know, ruling over a bunch of people, like that's not what she was about. You know, I believe she actually just shut herself away for a good amount of time because she was like, this is just not my thing. Bye guys, I'm going to go take an extra long stone nap. Madrana doesn't really have that luxury. She finally got her people back from Kalitas, otherwise known as Mr. Tatas. Um, <laughs> and since then has been trying to do what's best in the long term. I think that's sort of interesting, right? Because black and white, those colors tend to see things like fairly in the broad scope of whatever. But it is interesting to me that Nahiri wasn't able to see the bigger picture here. Mm -hmm. Well, remembering mm -hmm. that Nahiri is also very red aligned. And I think that that passion kind of blinds her at times. Yeah, she doesn't really see the big picture. Whereas like Soren kind of saw the big picture, but obviously also from kind of myopic, yeah. strong first sort of perspective. I also think because it's in this first half of the stories too, we get um, Ugin and Jace's conversation in which Ugin is like, okay, but you can't kill the Odrazi though. And Jace is like, but have you tried? And Ugin's like, yes, you can. And Jace is like, but have you really tried? We'll talk about this more, I'm sure, when we get to the uh, second half of these stories. But when the initial retrap the Eldrazi plan fails, Jace is like, fuck it. Plan B, we're killing them. Yeah. You know, and he, he doesn't buy into that immediately. You know, it, it takes Nissa and Chandra. But, like, I think there is also some amount of... Nahiri is stuck in this certain perspective on what can and cannot be done about the Eldrazi. Whereas you have folks who are fresh, like Drana and the New Walkers and that sort of thing, who look at the problem and go, okay, sticking them in the box and putting a lock on it didn't work. They keep getting out. What do we do? And I think that's an interesting thing to note story-wise is this is not the first time the Titans have escaped. Like, Nahiri beat them back into the box by herself and then went to go find Soren and Ugin because they didn't pick up their planeswalking cell phones when the signal went out. Yeah. 
In Ugin's defense, he was dead. But <laughs> yeah, I guess in Sora's defense, he's also maybe kind of technically dead, but like animate. That's, Our vampire I, is truly alive. <laughs> uh, that's a whole different podcast. Um, but it's a whole different podcast. I just think yeah. Ugin knows better, and it turns out that it's kind of like their avatars. So when one titan falls, another one is born from the fire tribe. <laughs> <laughs> Nicol Bolas is Ulamog confirmed. Um, <laughs> yes. Nicol um, Bolas wishes he was Ulamog. I think Nicol Bolas wishes he was a praetor, honestly. I'm just trying to get this. I'm trying to imagine like Ulamog and and Nicol Bolas now in like an eating contest, like the the Fourth of July like hot dog eating contest, and Ulamog just eating everything, and Nicol Bolas is like, no, no more hot dogs, no. <laughs> That's actually how he sparked, not by eating Mister Mister. What do we call the name of the whale? Planeswalker. Not by eating the Leviathan, yeah. and not by being super jealous. But by eating far too many hot dogs. But losing an eating contest to Ulamog. <laughs> um, I think the resilience of the Zendikar people, of the, of the Zendikari, are really on display. I think it is. It is watching them sort of decide they are going to be resilient. And I think that is a thing that narratively we don't tend to see a lot like we tend to see a lot of like rebellion or defense stories in which people have already made the decision and then like there's one person who's a turncoat and that sort of thing but I I think the thing that kind of gets lost in some people's critique in it is that uh, to me Battle for Zendikar is a story in which we are seeing people actively making the decision to give up or to continue fighting. And we do see mm-hmm. both. And mm-hmm. I think Drana is the the turning point at which a bunch of people see someone go, no more. And seeing that one person say no more inspires a whole bunch of other people to also say no more. And that's sort of the trademark of an amazing leader, right? Someone who is able to inspire others to do what needs to be done. In my head now, I'm kind of contrasting her with Gideon. I mean, like, I'm always going to be, like, pro-Drana as opposed to pro-Gideon, but it's it's sort of a similar situation, right? Like, we have individuals who are inspiring entire swaths of, like, the Syndicate populace, but in their own way. Yeah. Gideon is being Gideon at Gideon's best, where he's just basically like, I am the general, and I got this! And he flings himself in front of people and makes himself invulnerable, but... In, in a lot of ways, I kind of really admire and I love Drana, first of all, being a lady vampire in power, being yeah. ruthless and not being apologetic about it. Mm-hmm. Shades, of, shades of Liliana Vest here, but I'm just like, I'm all about that life. And I just, I love that fact that she is willing to do what it takes in order to get it done. And unlike Gideon at this point in time, she knows how to manage an army and lead. And, you know, she is totally willing to sacrifice you know, what she considers to be pawns in her case to achieve the objective where Gideon was basically just throwing himself out in front repeatedly until, like, he started listening to Tazri a bit more. I I think most of Gideon's, like, expertise, like, when you're talking about battles and that sort of thing, comes from much smaller bands of people. Um, Yeah, like skirmishes. Yeah, that's a completely different beast. I, I think where Gideon shines as Gideon, where you get an idea of, like, what the things that make him a strong leader are is like for example when they are at sky rock and he helps redirect one of the water bowls so it's pouring down like obviously there's a needed resource of water but also there's a source of joy and like oh like there's water we can like play in like 
giving people a renewed sense of joy in those situations can also be really important. And that's a thing that him and Tosri have an argument about. Yeah. Which Morale. I, yeah, I, I don't think Tosri was wrong necessarily. Um, but I do think that there is something to be said for making sure people can maintain that morale or else it's sort of like, so there's, there's a quote famously by Winston Churchill who has a lot of problems, but I, I do like the nature of this quote. Um, I have not, fully looked into the legitimacy of this but the story is someone asked him to defund arts during the war effort and he went then why the fuck are we fighting like <laughs> obviously paraphrased i don't think winston churchill spoke with a californian accent but uh i i think i i think there's some of that in gideon's behavior which is like okay but if we're gonna fight to survive like we also need to live i think what I'm trying to get at is you need Tosri, Gideon, and Drana in this situation. Like, no no singular person makes that situation. Without any of those, like, it starts to sort of fall apart. Kind of going on a slight tangent here, I, I'm going to posit that Battle for Zendikar and its story arc, I think, actually portrays war in a much better, more realistic way than War of the Spark. <laughs> Yes. Like, it's almost like we should have inverted those names, like Battle for the Spark and War for Zendikar. Like, yeah. really, I feel like I love the way that these early stories talk about the real life casualties and the fatigue that sets in when you're fighting and you're not sure if why, like, if, if the reason you're fighting is worth it, if it's going to see anything, and the tedium that sets in every day just trying to remember that even though life right now really sucks that that day that you have is probably the best blessing you're going to get until maybe the next day and that's one of the things i'm really hoping that we see in zendikar rising is a world that has seen war on an enormous catastrophic scale almost more than any other plane like there are a few other planes i think i can name that would be along those lines but I'm hoping that we see some really good, realistic, flavorful depictions of what is the world like now that we've progressed past this terrible place. Because it can't go back to normal. At least not entirely. Any other thoughts before we go ahead and wrap up this second episode of Memories of Zendikar? Just kind of, you know, there's this long throwback, but uh, took me a while to think it over, is talking about, like, how... Nahiri kind of like walked in and saw that things were wiped out and didn't even bother checking. The one thing that also comes to mind is like she saw that three old walkers couldn't do anything permanent about the Eldrazi and so you know if they were loose what would you know she had just popped out of the hell vault post mending and was like what the hell happened to me and I could definitely see where that would lead to kind of that just oh well everything's screwed now. Yeah, I definitely don't blame Nahiri. I, uh, oof. yeah, the whole Nahiri discussion, I think I could actually literally do, like, legitimately do a full episode on on its own, and I don't know if I want to get us into that discourse, yeah. but, um, uh, yeah, no, I, I don't, I'm, I'm certainly not blaming her. I just, I think it's interesting to see that juxtaposition, especially when we have so many other white-aligned characters, um, mm -hmm. at the forefront that sort of directly contrast that behavior. Gideon, Tazri, mm -hmm. sort of things. I mean, even Sorin to an extent. 
contrasts that behavior. I think Bob is right. I think I think that is a large part of her red nature of just like seeing and flipping the table. Like she's done. Like D O N E done. D- done. Yeah. I flip this plane and I'm going to <laughs> make a bunch of cryptolis and screw up your your plane too. Um, I drink your milkshake. Oh man. <laughs> We should definitely have a Nihiri episode where we just talk about her, the evolution of her character, especially as it goes into Shadows. Because Shadows, I think, is a, has a fascinating storyline and really kind of delves into the fleshing out of that aspect of her character. But yeah, until then, I guess we'll just have to be content with our super awesome mono black vampire queen, which I'm, ah, I love Drana so much. You got um, dangerously close to a wooing there. Ah! <laughs> 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 just. <laughs> She's so cool. Okay. Notice me, With senpai. That, notice me, senpai. Yes, she noticed me. I have a plus one, plus one counter. Yes. Frozen three. Drana and Alindra. An adventure. Oh, yes, my correct. gosh. Yes. Uh-huh. Into the end. <laughs> All right. With that, thank you so much to Card Kingdom and to our patrons on Patreon. We would not do what we do without your help and support. This has been another episode of The Lorgoifs. I'm one of your hosts, Michelle. I'm Bob. I'm Taya. I'm Grace Plants walking away again. Ah! No, she's gone. Ah!
I'm not much of a fan of them. They're skeeters. <laughs> I just got that joke. Damn it, Michelle. <laughs> <laughs> You're getting me from the literal side. <laughs> oh, now that I have you in... <clears throat> Ooh, sorry, don't breathe your spit. Feed me, mama. Uh, <laughs> sorry, not mama. <laughs> Feed me, mama. That, that's how I read it the first time I saw it, too. I don't think that's the correct one, but it's the one I'm going with. I just saw like a, a crying kitten. I'm not don't question me. We're going. <laughs> I love this ad, and thank you all for bringing it to life. I love all the references, like allies and stuff. You know, you got a little bit of everything in there. The only it, thing it, I couldn't fit was landfall. I was like, <laughs> I don't know how to make landfall work in a restaurant. Turns out keeping no the tongue in your back of your mouth is really weird. <laughs>